0: Ryan. Hello Michael. Ryan are you yeah, there? I'm
1: back. I am. Yes, I want to welcome everybody into the inaugural first ever worldwide premiere of the Buck and Sacks show, a podcast about sports and other things that we want to talk about. I'm Michael Sacks here in San Francisco, California and the man that you'll be hearing from here shortly is Ryan Buckley in Portland, Oregon and you know I just want to give you guys a little little format for the show. We're going to talk about something that we like in the world of sports, something we don't like, and then something we find interesting or maybe surprising. And then on top of that, we may talk about anything else that we want to. It's our podcast. We can do what we want, right, Ryan?
0: That's absolutely right. I think uh, we will be giving the people mostly a piece of our minds and probably less of their own minds, but away we go.
1: Away we go. So with that being said, I'm going to tee you up and let you start what's on your mind is something that you know you really like something you that really gets you going something that really makes you happy in the wide world of sports today on this beautiful Monday afternoon
0: it is a beautiful Monday afternoon uh, for me the thing that made me the most excited I thought it was the best for sports uh, over the weekend that's really been brewing Uh, now for a number of months, is the Las Vegas Golden Knights. I think it's a fantastic story. I think it's a really fun story. Um, There are a number of levels to it that I think are cool. Uh, You mentioned in a previous conversation the way that the really the tragedy at the outset of the season kind of was a rallying point um, for the city and the team took that on a little bit, and so I think everyone was really pulling for this crew from the very beginning, and then it was cool to see them climb in the standings, and at first it's a fluke, and then the longer they sustain it, you start to believe a little bit more, but you don't really think they're going to get to this level. Um, They are really against all odds at the bottom of the barrel, from a literal odds standpoint, 500 to 1 to start the season, and it's a team comprised of guys that other franchises didn't want. that. Their ownership, frankly, didn't think would be ready to compete until another three years from now. And so I think when you see all that's gone into that and then on top of it, I think it's good for the casual sports fan. I think that hockey tends to be more niche and it's something that now creates a level of interest that wasn't there before. And if that creates a few more hockey fans for a sport that I think is really entertaining, uh, I'm all for it. I'm all about it.
1: Yeah, and you know, for me, I'm not a casual sports fan, but when it comes to hockey, I am, and that's being kind. I mean, really, I I watch no hockey, but I've been watching, you know, this Vegas team from the beginning of the playoffs. Not since the beginning of the regular season, but since the playoffs started, I've been tuning in here and there, and I've been watching way more hockey than I ever would have before, just because there, there's such an amazing story, like you said. I mean, for me, the the hook is not only that they're exp- they're an expansion team doing this in year one, but more than that, the tragedy, the shooting that happened outside the Mandalay Bay, and how it's ga- how it's galvanized this sporting community that really we didn't know even existed, because Vegas has never had a professional hockey, a professional sports team, I should say. Before, I mean, the national sporting landscape hasn't really had Vegas on its radar since the days of Jerry Tarkanian and Grandmama, you know, the running Rebs back in the early 90s, you know, taking the NCAA tournament by storm. So we didn't know, you know, you fly, I think a lot of sports fans come in and out of Vegas for a couple days. They go on the strip. They don't really see much of the city itself. But you're beginning to sort of see when you watch a home Vegas Knights game, just this vibrancy that the community in Las Vegas there has and the passion they have for the team. The, the way they've sort of come together, the way this team has brought them together, and it just jumps out of the television screen at me, and it's undeniable. I can't, I can't take my eyes off of it. I'm rooting for them. I'm into it. I like hockey all of a sudden. It's like I don't even know what's gotten into me, but it's crazy, and I think there's a lot of sports fans around the country that feel the exact same way, so a great pick by you, for the top, you know, for your good for the week. And, you know, that sort of brings me to my good for the week. And it's a sport that, I, you know, we're not going to talk a lot about in person or on this podcast. But horse racing, I mean, I, I don't know if you saw the Preakness on Saturday, but I was captivated by it. You know, this horse Justify, you know, won the Kentucky Derby. Then on Saturday, he runs a race in the sloppy mud, the fog so bad, the television cameras, you can't even see what's going on in the race for half of the race, uh, the, the track announcer who was calling the race on NBC was just absolutely fantastic. I mean, painting the picture of what was going on, you kind of like had some empathy with him because he couldn't really even see what was going on in the race half the time. And then it was a very close race down to the wire, Justify wins. He's won the first two legs of the Triple Crown. Now he's going to go to the Belmont with a chance to win the Triple Crown, which up into a, of, until a few years ago, with American Pharaoh, we hadn't seen a Triple Crown winner since 1978. Now, all of a sudden, we might have mm-hmm. another one. So, I mean, to me, Triple Crown in horse racing brings a whole nother sport into the sporting landscape that isn't there most of the time. But I love it. It's, you know, when you've got a Triple Crown, it's awesome to have something else to sort of get excited about and pay attention to. And now, All Eyes will be on the Belmont on June 9th. And I, you know, I just think it's awesome.
0: Yeah, I think that actually these two things are a little bit connected in that this Vegas run for the hockey team has made more people who aren't casual hockey fans aware of what's going on in the hockey landscape. Much like a horse winning the first two legs of the Triple Crown brings more people into the fold in yeah. the horse racing landscape. Great point. I, mean, I don't know what I don't know whether it's something that's going to stick or not, but it's always more fun for the sport, for the general public, for the summer when you've got one of these storylines going. Um, but we'll we'll transition from what we think was good in the week of sports to something that we think is not so good. Yeah, what what got, we'll, we, what got you down?
1: What got you down, right?
0: Well, we. My understanding is that we uh, are going to double up on the same topic or the same rough uh, genre. If you we will, are going into the delving into the NBA, um, I wouldn't say it got me down because I'm a Warriors fan. But I am so unimpressed with James Harden that I kind of can't believe this is the same guy who's running who's going to run away with the MVP voting. Um, it's not so much in the numbers. I mean, the numbers haven't been great either, but you watch him in the series against the Warriors, and specifically in Game 3, and it just looks like he's he's quitting and there's no effort there, and it doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who you'd entrust your entire franchise to, that you'd want to put the team on his back, that you'd want to be leaving, leading you down the playoff stretch. And we saw a couple other instances of it earlier in his career, even earlier in this very playoffs against the Jazz, when Chris Paul put the team on his back and then kind of made excuses for Harden saying, oh, well, he was sick and we all had to rally around him. It seems like in some of the biggest moments, James Harden just isn't ready to go. And I don't know if he doesn't have the juice or I don't know if, he doesn't have the right mental makeup or the right attitude when the game isn't quite going his way, but he seems completely disinterested on the defensive end. Sean Livingston, whose knees are about four, 53 years old, completely cooked him yesterday in a crossover that was uh, midway through the fourth quarter. It was a brilliant play by Livingston. And maybe, you know, some people are saying, well, Harden didn't care at that point. It was already a blow up, but then you're still on the floor and he doesn't even make an attempt He's like a human turnstile, and I just think it's really underwhelming for a guy that really people have clamored should be getting all this respect and should be getting all this notoriety to see him really flop like this.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's not much more I can add to that. You just roasted the guy, and deservedly so. I mean, I agree with pretty much everything you said. You know, I think it's going to be super interesting to see how he comes out in Game Four and responds to all of this tomorrow night. You know, but just to sort of extend what you were saying, uh, I was disappointed in both NBA playoff games over the weekend. I was really excited for Game Three in Cleveland and then Game Three yesterday in Golden State in Oakland, and both games were just total blowouts. I mean, total non-games. I could have passed on both and not seen any of it, and I wouldn't have been disappointed at all because they were just total blowouts. But for me, I'm going to go after Harden's teammate a little bit, Chris Paul. I was just totally unimpressed with him. I mean, just from the jump, it didn't seem like, you know, it didn't seem like he was ready to go. It didn't seem like on either end of the floor, you know. It, early on, the Rockets went totally after Steph Curry. They wanted to put him in the pick and roll and have him defend whoever they chose to have the ball, whether it was Harden. Or Paul and I think they hit their first shot first four shots they jump out to an early lead Kerr calls the timeout and then after that they basically stopped using Curry as the hedge man on on the screens and started switching everything which is what they normally do and sort of lived with Curry's defense and from there the rest of the Rockets just weren't really weren't ready to to play basketball I mean it was unbelievable and to me You know, you talk about James Harden, but all we've heard about his whole career is that Chris Paul's, you know, one of the best point guards to ever play, tough as can be, tough as nails, and then, you know, he had never been to a conference final until this year. He finally gets here, and, you know, everyone always said, well, he never had the team around him to get to a conference final before now. And what we've seen from him so far this series, he just isn't isn't good. I mean, on either end of the floor, and he's just got that – pouty look on his face the whole time and it's like in the once curry got going in the third quarter he looked totally demoralized and they just had nothing i mean it looked like the rockets were to you know mike d'antoni said it after the game he said his team was soft and paul and harden both agreed and i think that's the word i mean that's the word you use they were soft from a, a mental approach standpoint and just sort of a leadership standpoint forget about the basketball they look like they didn't want to be there. And here you are coming off a, a Game 2, which you dominated in Houston. You had three days to prepare for this game in Oakland. Of course, it's not going to be easy to win that game. But if you want to win this series, and you're the Rockets, you had to win that game last night. They can't win the series without winning a game in Oakland. You've Again, you had three days to prepare. Now you're going to play every other day. And Chris Paul, from a leadership standpoint and from a basketball standpoint, was nowhere to be found, and I just found it impossible to just sort of accept that as as a fan of the game of basketball. I just it was very very disappointing.
0: And I think w- one thing that I heard that really exemplifies or uh, speaks to the point you're trying to make is I heard a, a soundbite from Chris Paul about what went wrong with the game, and he said, "You know, it was 22-22." And, they went on a quick run there, and then all of a sudden it was 31-22, and then it was pretty much over. Yeah. I and mean, he's kind of declaring that they couldn't climb out of a nine-point hole in the first quarter. Yeah, this is the top-scoring team leadership? in the NBA. They couldn't
1: climb out of a nine-point hole. I mean, what does that? I mean, that kind of, to me, tells you everything that you wanna I, I want to know. I'm want. i interested yeah. to hear your most interesting story, because I, I think it's a good one. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I was a little bit fascinated, and I don't know if fascinated is the right word yet because we kind of haven't seen what it could evolve into, but uh, for those who didn't see it, the Rays over the weekend did something different and they decided they were going to start one Sergio Romo.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And a man who's made, I think, I read 588 appearances in his career, and uh, none of them have ever been to start the ball game. And basically, the the philosophy in Tampa was... You just need to get 27 outs. So if this guy's good to go and he's going to face some righties and you can set the righty-on-righty righty matchup early, then you know exactly what the order is going to be. You've got him against some of the hitters who could be the most dangerous. Right. And then you turn the ball over to somebody just a little later who's going to eat some innings. And I think it's not so much a, a fascination with the Rays, but I like this idea of reimagining the way to get 27 outs. And I think we started to see it a little bit in the playoffs with the way Terry Francona handled Andrew Miller. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was really their their best pitcher. And he decided he was going to put him in the highest leverage spots. Not just the latest in the game, but when it mattered most, when there were guys on base, or when the toughest outs were up there. And this isn't the same as that, but I, I like it when in a game people so rarely think outside the box. We start to see different inventive ways of trying to go about it and the Rays have nothing to lose let's let's be honest if they had any shot at being 500 they probably wouldn't be doing this but they're supposed to be terrible so they're taking a different approach and I would like to see how much if any of this rubs off on other managers on other clubs and other philosophies
1: yeah and I I I found it to be extremely interesting too and a couple couple other things to note I I think sort of the fallout of it, I found to be the most interesting. You know, they were playing the Angels, and, and Romo actually started back-to-back days. He started, I think it was both Saturday and Sunday. So he pitched an inning the first game. Correct, the next correct, day they yeah. brought him out to start again. He pitched an inning and a third. He didn't give up a single run in those two and one-thirds innings. And then, of course, all the reporters went to the Angels after, I believe it was the second game, and asked, you know, their take on it. And, of course, you know, you give an opportunity for baseball players to act like baseball players, and boy, are they going to take it? Because I think they went to Mike <laughs> Trout first, and you know he, you know being a superstar and savvy guy that he is, he he didn't really want to say anything that negative, but he basically told the reporters to go talk to Zach Cozart, one of the Angels infielders, and so the reporters went to Zach Cozart, which they probably wouldn't have had they not been. Prompted by his teammate trout, and you know, I don't know if you saw the quotes, but Cozart basically said you know it was bad for baseball, that it was like a spring training game, and that he hopes that you know this isn't a trend for the future, and to me, that's just like you know that's the response that you expect to get from a major league baseball player, but to me it's the totally wrong response you know, I don't necessarily 100%. blame Cozart. I understand where he's coming from. anything that you know is going to hurt his numbers is going to hurt his career in any way he's not going to be for. But let's look at this with a little bit more of an open mind. I mean, first of all, the opposing team can do whatever they want as long as they're following the rules and let you know let's have a little bit of a, a sympathy for the rays you know they have one of the lowest payrolls in baseball their starting rotations already been decimated by injury they're just trying to you know win a game you know they're trying to win they're a just baseball cobbling game something together trying to get trying to get through a road trip or whatever you know without without having to just decimate their farm system and bring up a bunch of guys that aren't ready and i and i'd give a, a tip of the cap to the rays organization for as you said trying to do something new, trying to innovate a little bit. I mean, isn't that sort of what competitive people are all about, trying to find new ways To be better at what they do. And that's what the Rays are doing. And I do think that you're going to see more of this in Major League Baseball. And, you know, I think you were right with the point you made about Francona and Andrew Miller. You saw a little bit more of that in the playoffs last year with managers bringing in their closers or maybe their best reliever, not at the end of the game, but maybe in the seventh inning sometimes even. I think we saw Kenley Jansen do that a couple times with the Dodgers. And I love it. I mean, figure out ways to make your team better, figure out ways to win games. At the end of the day, it's about winning games. I mean, that's what your fans want. That's what they pay to see. They want to see you win games. And if and if you can figure out a new way to do it that doesn't break the rules in any way, shape, or form, by all means, do it. So I think it's great. I'm interested to see sort of where it goes from here. It's going to be really interesting because, you know, there's a number of different interesting aspects to it. But, you know, do you need to carry another pitcher? Does it change the way the opposing manager sort of orders his lineup? You know, do you have enough bench guys to bring in a key Pinch hitter late in the game. If you burn a guy early to play the matchup, maybe you don't play the matchups as much early. I don't know. There's going to be a lot of interesting parts about it, and that sort of brings me to my interesting story of the week. And it didn't happen on yeah, a. Yeah, you gave me
0: quite. Twi- you gave me quite the tease. You just you texted me that your interesting involved a sauna, so I don't really know where this is going, but I'm yeah. excited.
1: Well, I'm going to tell you right now. The wait is over. You know, I'm going to reveal my sauna story now, and, and I hope that you like it. Are as are as intrigued by it as I was when it happened so backstory <laughs> on Friday I go to the Russian sauna uh, it's called Archimedes Bon in Hunters Point it's really an amazing place i found I've been going about once a month for the past few months and it's really a cool place it's a co-ed sauna that you go in and it's like it's hot as all kind of like a bathhouse style it's kind of like a bathhouse yeah they've got a little cafe where you can eat and have a beer and the beautiful view of the city but they've got this one sauna that gets up to they've got two different saunas and they're both like flaming hot but one one of them gets up to (laughs) 220 degrees so i'm sitting in this sauna with this dude he's probably about 60 years old and we start talking, and it's 220 degrees in there, and, and we're talking, and he asked me if I'd ever been to this sauna before, that it was his first time. I said I'd been a couple times, and he said it was his first time going. Then he drops the line, this is actually my first time ever sweating before. And I was like, what? What, like, what, what does that mean? Okay, so this is a probably about a 60-year-old man, appears to be in fairly excellent shape. And here he is telling me that... That's such an unbelievable is, claim! He says, this is my first time sweating before and so i said you've you need to go into a little more detail because that just like totally (laughs) blew me away and he said well uh i i've never really exercised before this is my first time in a sauna before and i've never really participated in any form of physical activity in my whole life and i was just like you're kidding me like how is this possible like what are you talking about you've never like you've never been on a sports team before you've never like gone for a jog? Like, nothing? And he's like, no. Or like nothing. when you were
0: eight years old, you didn't play tag with your friends and work up a little sweat in the So summertime. this is what I'm thinking. No, so I'm like,
1: I, I really need you to explain this a little bit more, man. So he's like, okay, so here's the deal. He said... <laughs> You're he giving said, him the hard press. Yeah, so he said, when I was a kid, I had really bad asthma, and my mom basically wouldn't let me go outside and play. I had very few friends. I just never really got into sports, and then as, as an adult, I just was sort of afraid to to go for a run. I didn't know what would happen. I didn't want to play any sports. I didn't want to participate in any sort of activities. So this right here is the first time that I've ever really sweated before. And I was just like, this is just this is just incredible. And he went on from there to sort of tell me the whole reason he had gone to the sauna in the first place is he just finished writing his musical that he had been working on for the past twenty two years and he just finished it and he was like had had, his under a tremendous amount of stress finishing this musical which he not only wrote all the words and and everything in it but he also wrote the music for all eighteen songs that are in the musical And, you know, he's really proud of this musical, obviously. He's been working on it for 22 years. And he's hopeful that it's, you know, I guess, gonna go to Broadway. He told me the name of it. I don't wanna reveal the name of it, you know, to to sort of hide his identity a little bit here. But, you know, I, I mean, I was just blunt. What, what a conversation to strike up with a, a a nice stranger in the sauna to find out that a 60-year-old man had never, by his own admission, had never sweat before up until that very moment that you were then participating in with him. So, I mean, just, just an incredible sauna story for me on Friday.
0: That is really remarkable. I, I just, there's so many more questions that I have, but I don't really know that there's much more to be answered. I think that that's just... Man, yeah. I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it a little it's, bit.
1: It's 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 really something. I've been I've been telling pretty much everybody I know, and now I've told the whole world wide web, whoever is nice enough to listen. So I you know, we've now gone through our good, bad and interesting. Is there anything you want to talk about to sort of wrap this up in our first ever inaugural world premiere of the Buck and Sack Show?
0: Yeah, let's get back to basketball just for a second, I'm into Try something out, yeah. Going forward, uh, called who you got. And okay. Really, we're just looking. We're looking to make a couple predictions uh, about what the week uh, ahead may hold. Yes. So we've got a pair of of two one series now with yeah. the Celtics, Cavs, and the Warriors and Rockets. Um, do you feel like either one of these are going to be a series? And essentially, the question is, who you got, and in how many games?
1: Okay, well, I I think that I like Cleveland tonight. Um, I think that they even the series tonight. It just seems that the Eastern Conference series seems like, you know, who who can win on the other team's home floor. And obviously the Celtics would have game seven at home. So I think I like the Celtics in either six or seven. I could see the Celtics stealing one, you know, in Cleveland. But I, I don't think it's tonight. I do expect the game to be closer. I think Brad Stevens and, and Boston will figure some things out that was missing uh, on Saturday night. So I, I'll take Cleveland tonight. I still like Boston to win the series, as I did before the see, the series started, mainly because they have Game 7 at home. So I'll say Boston in 6 or 7. I'll lean towards 7. And, you know, with the Warriors and Rockets, I, I said before the series started I liked the Warriors in 5 I'm going to stick with that. I saw certainly as we've detailed already in the show, I didn't see Houston gave me no reason to think that they're going to win another game. Maybe they show a little bit more, you know, a little bit more heart tomorrow night in Oracle, but I don't see it. I still like the Warriors in 5 in that series. What what about you?
0: Yeah, I'm I'm with you on Warriors in 5. I think that you saw everything you needed to from the Rockets as far as like we detailed their interest level or their, at least what they showed as their interest level. I can't imagine them finding a way to scrap and clog at three more victories. And so I don't know if they'll either bo- even bother to try to get one. Um, but then I think the more interesting one at this point has to be the Celtics and Cavaliers. And it actually occurred to me on my drive home today, when I hadn't really thought about this before that should Boston win tonight and then again, on in game 5 yeah. this would be lebron james's last game in cleveland as a cavalier wow. so i for that for that reason i bet he's thought about that and i don't know that he puts a ton of stock into those things but i bet he's not this is not his last game in cleveland so i think that i still don't know that the cavaliers are going to win the series i think that the celtics are better coached i think they're going to be better prepared i think that lebron is just a <laughs> hell of a force by himself but we've seen he does not have enough help and he's probably not getting anymore um so without a supporting cast that you can really rely on I have a hard time seeing them win this series I said Celtics in six before the series I'm gonna stick with Celtics in six I don't know if the Celtics are gonna get one tonight I think that tonight's gonna be a dogfight I think it might be the best game we get in this series
1: yeah I agree and you know uh, one one final word on LeBron you know Everyone talks about how he, he makes other players better. And I, I think you can look at that in two ways. You know, does he make him a better player on the court? But I I think he also... I think where his... A, a, an underrated part of him as a player and just as a sort of personality is the way he can sort of motivate the guys and get them up for, the, for a game. I mean, they had... He had those mm-hmm. other guys really believing that they were gonna win that game in game three. I mean you could just tell it from the jump. I mean they jumped on the Celtics early, they didn't let off. He you could tell that those other the other players, you know, whether it's Kevin Love or J.R. Smith or George Hill or Kyle Corver Tristan Thompson, all the rest of those guys, they were so—they just looked so much more engaged in Game Three than they did in Game Two. You know, everybody jumped on them in Game Two for their lack of effort, but you know, LeBron made sure that that was not going to be the case in Game Three. He had them riding high, and it really was in stark contrast to what you saw from the Rockets in Game 3 at Oracle last night. I mean, it's just a totally different demeanor, and I attribute that to LeBron as much as anybody. I mean, the way he just sort of had them up for the game mentally, and it was just like, guys, we are not losing this game, and you would sort of expected guys of James Harden and Chris Paul's stature to have their teammates up for that game in Oracle last night, and you didn't see it at all, and I think that was what we were both so disappointed in. Just from a competitive mindset standpoint, it wasn't there, and I honestly am not sure that the Rockets have it in them to get back up for that the rest of the series. You know, if they lose game four tomorrow night in Oracle, the series is probably over.
0: I'm a little bit conflicted on LeBron, not as a basketball player by any stretch. He has amazed me more this season than he ever has, but the thing that I'm conflicted on is I agree with you that he's able to rally his teammates, but definitely and I also want to place blame on him at the same time for essentially assembling this team around him. He's the one who demanded that J.R. Smith get paid. And J.R. Smith's chewing up $15 million. He's the one that demanded Tristan Thompson get paid. He's getting paid $17 million. He needed new teammates. He gets George Hill. There's another $18 million. And basically the reason he may not come back to Cleveland is because they can't build enough – a good enough team around him because he essentially dictated the team that they build now that isn't quite good enough. So I, would like, I do want to laud him for bringing his teammates along, but you also gotta give him a share of the blame as the quasi GM for assembling such a crappy supporting cast.
1: Yeah. I mean, all good points. I mean, the way I look at that and I'll be brief and we can wrap this thing up is, you know, I yep. just felt, I, I kind of just feel like he was looking at what would the alternatives be if those guys left, meaning Tristan Thompson and, jr smith and he probably saw a bunch of rookies that he didn't feel like he would have a chance to go back to the finals with so i think he probably felt like i can probably go back to the finals if i bring these guys back and this is what it's going to cost to get them so we're better off doing that than basically starting a full rebuild rebuild situation let let them rebuild once i'm gone to, to another team so i think that's probably the way that lebron looked at it but i think you make you make really good points you know with what you said
0: Well, one thing that can be said is that we both uh, tremendously respect LeBron and what he's doing. It's been nothing short of astonishing to see this decade and a half that he's had. But with Uh, that, I suppose we should wrap it up. The first ever Buck and Sachs show, a sports podcast, uh, coming to a conclusion. For those who decided to join in, thank you. Share it. Pass it along. Rate us. We don't even know how this is going to work. We're publishing for the first time tonight, but uh, thanks for listening.
1: Yeah, thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back with you next week. We look forward to it.